Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. First off, a thank you to the sponsors of this episode, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored for busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Adam Hill. Dr. Hill is a pediatric oncologist and a specialist in palliative care, and he is the author of an absolutely stunning and staggering book called Long Walk Out of the Woods. Long Walk Out of the Woods is his chronicle of a downward spiral in his life and his ongoing recovery from alcohol use disorder. And in this episode of Explore the Space, we get into something that I found very compelling, attrition mindset and the impact that attrition mindset has had on the practice of medicine and those who are a part of it. Also, the frightening ways that the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed all of our mental health vulnerabilities, as well as the importance for us to learn how to and have safe constructs wherein we can process grief and trauma and the terrible things that we see on a routine basis as we go forward in the practice of medicine, where there is currently a major gap. And it was really interesting to hear his perspectives on this. I actually shared a couple of stories that are pretty important for me and pretty pivotal in my career that I've never talked about on the podcast and don't really talk about much at all. And it actually felt really good to share them here. And I hope that you take them on board in that spirit. Before we get to the episode, please do subscribe to Explore the Space podcast wherever you download your shows, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever we're there. Email me anytime you like, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. I love nothing more in this podcasting world than hearing from people who listen to Explore the Space, who've just discovered it, have feedback, ideas, whatever it is. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on social media as well, Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. And please do check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast. It's packed. We are coming up on almost 200 episodes and there is so much incredible evergreen content in there. Please do take a look. Please do take a look at the white papers as well. There's just, it's packed and I I really hope you enjoy it. It was a real treat to speak with Dr. Hill in this episode. He has walked a very, very difficult road and the transparency with which he writes about it in his book and shares it in this conversation is really wonderful and it's really important and it's motivating, quite frankly. So without further ado, here is Dr. Adam Hill. Adam, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Pleasure to be with you today. I don't think you could have written this book that we're going to talk about, Long Walk Out of the Woods, at a better time. And I say that for a lot of reasons, but one of them is 
it's it's being found and read by people who get to read it at a critical moment and that's obviously related to our current state in the COVID-19 pandemic. The book was published before that, but it for me feels like a cornerstone of reading and learning. Did you have any idea that this book would find that opening and fit so well? into into something when you released it you know it to me is a a moment of of letting go and just putting it out there and hoping that it reaches people in in their own story when they need it and you know unfortunately for so many of us in healthcare and really just around the world that are affected by this pandemic i could have never fathomed or imagined what people are going through right now when i started to write this book over 3 years ago at the same time i feel blessed that maybe it has an opportunity to you know strike your chord or to to really make a difference in somebody's life when they need it I've read memoirs and testimonials before. I've been very fortunate in that way, and I've learned from all of them. I haven't read one since we entered into this new phase of our lives and our careers uh, until I've read yours. And the thing about it that was really interesting and really stark for me is it hit on a theme that recurs when physicians are able to share in a transparent manner of how weak our infrastructures are, how weak our leadership structures are, how weak our mentorship structures are to support physicians when they're doing well, to recognize when they're having hard times and struggles and to elevate and support them when those struggles become apparent. Reading it now in the context of COVID-19 and feeling and seeing those weaknesses again and reliving my own experiences and then seeing what the road ahead looks like, Adam, it's it's a little jarring. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the the hope out of this is maybe there's been some exposure of the fragility of our ecosystems, both in business and social and cultural circles, but also within medicine that we've been so stretched in for so long and had to exist in a self-preservation mindset of doing the next work, seeing the next patient, graduating the next fellow or whatever it is that we've failed to build really all-inclusive welcoming, inviting, diverse, um, you know, a culturally sensitive and supportive environments. And, and, and I think out of this, well, I hope out of this, there's been this deconstruction back to like the basic roots of what we need to do to support each other. And, and maybe we can rebuild from from here. And so that's where I, I see the hope in how we've been sort of really openly exposed. Mindset is a topic that I think about a lot. And I like to consider and learn about different types of mindsets. And your experiences and your book and your presence on social media bring forth a lot of those. One of the ones that really stuck out for me working through the book and and kind of juxtaposing it with my experiences and what I've seen in, in my career and in leadership and things like that is the impact of an attrition mindset. And I think our profession has hardwired the idea that attrition is normal. It's 
part of the cost of doing business. It's just what medicine, it's just what it takes for medicine in the United States to operate. That attrition amongst personnel is just a sunk cost. It's just part of the game. And I hate it. <laughs> I absolutely hate it. Yeah. Do you have what, when you hear me say the, this idea of attrition mindset, what does that sound like to you? Well, I mean, I, I think from one hat that I've worn being in sort of hospital leadership circles and trying to make the argument in case for a business case to build supportive cultures of, of wellness and inclusion, then you have to take into account that attrition is part of the formula to convince people to, to spend money and invest in an infrastructure that that works. So you have to be mindful of that. But as a person who has lived through attrition and and really felt like the only way at one point in my life to survive was going to be to leave medicine, it, it really just showed me how deeply, you know, broken that business model of modern bureaucratic medicine is and how much work we we have to do. And so, you know, in recovery over the last eight, nine years, I think I've really tried to become more insular and and look within myself to find meaning and purpose and passion and work and and compassion and how I can use that to fuel this, I think, ongoing onslaught of waves of what it feels like of an attrition culture uh, to really drive me forward perpetually and to, uh, to keep doing the work. And whether that's with colleagues, with, you know, with patients, with families, um, but really searching for that deeper perspective of why I went into medicine in the first place. There's a spot in the book that I just want to read back to you. And then I want to share an experience that I had with you. And it's just so people can know when they get their copy of Long Walk Out of the Woods where we are. We're at the bottom of page 63. And you said, I will never forget the pained expression on his face. It's the look we in the medical culture have created by terrifying individuals into not seeking professional help. I've seen that look, man. I've I've probably carried that look, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And th- I had to like, close the book for a minute after I read that. I had a I had a reaction there, and I it took me back actually to when I was a resident, when I was just starting out as a second year resident. When you're now running the team, and it's really stressful, and it was hard for me. And you know, I couldn't sleep, and I was really really stressed, and I was having a lot of anxiety, and I was like, this is going to be a really hard two years because this is brutal, and we were on call and the attending liked to come in on the call nights at about nine or 10 o'clock just to kind of run the list. She was awesome. And she would come in she'd run the list. How's it going? You know, we want to make sure we're addressing things quickly. Um, acknowledging, you know, I was a brand new second year resident leading this team and we were sitting in the, in the office and it was just her and I, and she asked the question that we ask each other all the time. How are you doing? And we ask it, you know, rhetorically, we ask it as a platitude, but I just kind of took a deep breath and I was like, I got to tell her how I'm doing. And I told her, I said, I am really struggling. I can't sleep. I'm anxious. I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake and hurt somebody. I'm afraid I'm not educating the interns properly. I'm really having a hard time. And I was like, the next 10 seconds is really going to define the next phase of my career. How does this attending respond to me? And she gave me a hug. And we just talked for the next two hours and we covered the pages and we told the, you know, thankfully it was quiet for the next couple hours. Man, if she hadn't have done that, 
it would have been a very different world for me for sure. But she probably saw that terrified look that our culture beats into us. It's such a beautiful story. And I appreciate you You're referencing back to the book and how it hit you. I think you're absolutely right. Those, you know, those moments, that space that's built um, by somebody who's a senior resident, by a faculty, by a, a, a colleague to react in a way in that moment of, of need and create really a, a human compassionate space where where that reaction means everything and allows somebody to be open and vulnerable and share like you just did in a in a very true way i think that's so critically important and and we see that all the time in really siloed spaces of people that care deeply about each other in medicine i think it's juxtaposed to the terrified look of what may happen if i disclose this will my program you know, report it or will I have to talk about it on licensing or credentialing or if I seek open mental health treatment, you know, that has has created that look. I'm so glad that your your moment of sharing that was met with such love and compassion and, and I think that's how we do it. I was really, really fortunate and as I've gone through the rest of my career and I've met and been exposed to physicians such as yourself and healthcare professionals who've talked and written books and been very transparent, you realize how uncommon that is. And one of the other things that I brought out of long walk out of the woods is that, man, the message that is conveyed from the minute you hit medical school all the way through is that you suffer in silence and that's normal. And, you know, that's just the way it has to be. And again, we, <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I just hate it. It's, it's, it's so wrongheaded. It's so old. It fits in that, it fits in that place of we do this because it's the way it's always been done slash this was done to me. So I'm going to do it to you. It's so exactly. destructive and it's just, it's so hardwired, but man, you will suffer in silence. You know, it, it's so true. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that in, you know, the last handful of years in particular, there's been so many more people opening up and sharing yeah. and breaking yeah. that silence. You know, have a resident physician just recently, you know, had a perspective piece in New England Journal about having a history of bipolar disorder and, and working through that treatment and residency and writing it as a, you know, very openly and candidly, I think is a beautiful thing. And we're seeing more and more of that to, to rewrite the narrative that we are human beings in the midst of a really challenging job that sees trauma and tragedy and death and suffering and really inhuman things all the time. And it's normal to suffer and feel, you know, uh, deeply in the midst of that. And, um, and it's okay to talk about it. Do you think we're building some momentum or do you think these are kind of just drops into a fast moving river? I, I really, you know, I, I choose hope and I choose optimism yeah. uh, and yeah. recovery. I have to. And so I, I do. I, I see a lot uh, of progress, you know, with, with every step forward. I think there's steps backwards and sideways and boxes to be checked about, you know, wellness programs and things that may not have the purest of intentions. But for the most, <laughs> I mean. I, you know, you, you see that. Um, Can we spend some time on that word wellness just for a minute, please? Sure. I mean, it's one of those words that's been Ugh. over into of living and, and it doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. So, you know, well I 
to me, it's always about intention and it comes back to intention and not, um, and then attention to the details of, you know, why are you doing this? And are you really trying to create something that is trying to move the culture forward and create something that will help other people? Or are you doing it because you're supposed to do it? And it's, you know, uh, something that we have to have as in the medical culture of, yeah, we're taking care of our own. So I think the people who do it well are going in with lived experience or at least are, are open to people with lived experience to build something that has the intention of making a difference. And I always talk about if you're going to do something true in that space wellness, it has to be grassroots, organic, from the people in the streets, marching, creating something that works and building a community around that, as well as top down with addressing policy and systemic change about why people have felt so isolated and segregated and discriminated against uh, with their own mental health and addiction stories. So I think we have to do both and do both with uh, really deep, mindful intention. Yeah, I, I like that you keep this in a in a hopeful place. When I listen to you describe it as someone who knows more about this than anybody should have to know about it, I also just have that feeling of it's a it's it, it's a daunting task. But I think we have the right people and the right generation and the right motivation to do it. You know, as as we move this, the current generation of people at the apex of medical leadership move out of those offices and the next generation move in. And I can think of a host of people, yourself included, hopefully moving into those places where the policies are made, the procedures are created and the mandates are kind of built and the ethos is reformed. But that's going to that's generational work. It's going to take it's going to take it's going to take some time. It's absolutely true. And, and, you know, when I started sharing openly my, my own story, which was the end of 2016 and my first public speaking about my, my story, I, I knew that even sharing that there was going to be an evolution and of how it was met, how it was greeted, um, how people would still treat me differently. And even in, you know, four years, I've seen that evolved, but I always keep my mind on the, you know, it takes decades to change culture. And, and I think that we just have to keep pushing forward and, and doing things in a way that we can influence within the spheres that we, you know, can control. And some of the times you have to let go of the rest, but try to do what you can do. In that four-year period of time, what things have you felt are the low-hanging fruit for institutions to move on and adopt, acknowledging that cultural change will take time, but also seeing that we need movement for an institution, for a, for a leader that runs a department or for someone who has a role to play? What are the things that in the four years you've been transparent and advocating for change what are the what are the quick things what are the low-hanging pieces that an institution can move on you know, I mean, I, I think that you have to have some sort of community building event that really highlights the individuals with lived experience 
experience in a, in a safe way so that you can deconstruct a narrative that's perpetuated for a long time. So you, you identify people that are willing to share about their history of OCD, PTSD, anxiety, depression, you know, addiction in, in a way that they're looked up to in institutions and, and have that in a, as a rallying point of like, because the truth is, you know, so many people in our medical institutions have these stories, just nobody's sharing it and talking about it. And so if we sort of deconstruct that a little way, um, to me, it's been a rallying point. We've built this event, Compassion Rounds, and we packed 300, 400 people in uh, to an auditorium. Well, we used to. Now I guess it's Zoom. But and just tell our, tell our story. You know, in a way, and we're, you know, mentioning uh, off air our friend Gabe Boslett, who who shared uh, with NPR his story just recently about his own personal life and experience with him and his wife. And you can look it up. I won't share the the story myself, but um, in, in, in a way that I think other people then can look up to, to people um, who have lived experience. And then I think the other piece is are really investing in in infrastructure resources connection to mental health and bolstering that up so people have places to go with within their systems and then i think you have to start doing work on what your hospitals credentialing your policy your state licensing your phps people have to do work on that because people won't come forth if they know there's still a um, something hanging over their head that you know hey i'm going to have to answer a question about this on my license form two years from now. So um, I think all of those things sort of can be done in, in tandem. It's so interesting. You've used the word space a couple of times in this conversation, and it's something that I had kind of made note of as I was reading the book. But just in thinking about the people that would fill that auditorium, right, if it's part of your medical staff and part of your just part of the, the, the staff that at any institution you're around those people all day long and you have to just know that some of them are struggling. Some of them are having a hard time just based on pure, just based on demographic data, just based on statistics. We know the numbers. So when it's 300 people to think that none of them are having a hard time is a fallacy and to not have those wireframes in place for them to safely get help and know that they're doing the right thing is a disservice. And that's, I think, where we just have a huge chasm that we have to cross. Yeah. And, and I think for me, it's even that mind shift, uh, mindset shift to just assume that it's normal that every one of the individuals yeah. in the have a hard time. Totally. And, and that's normal. And, yeah. and just expect that, especially during these times. I mean, you know, my depression has been really stable for a long time. I haven't had a major depressive episode in a long time. Um, and six and a half years into sobriety and live it at a day at a time. But I'll tell you, you know, my anxiety in the midst of all this is a is an up and down. And, and I'm really open about that, that, you know, living in pandemic times and having three I have a six week old baby at home. We, you know, my wife delivered a baby and in, in the midst of all this and, um, 
and having the kids out of school and trying to balance hospital careers and coming in and showering before you're touching your kids and just, you know, it, it, it's stressful. And, and, uh, I'm blessed and lucky that I have a, a job that I can count on and go to every day and support my family. And so many people can't right now, but so it, it's also normal to be incredibly distressed and anxious right now. And I think that we just need to really openly acknowledge that as well. On that anxiety roller coaster, you know how you get in the roller coaster and it's like two people in the little thing and they clip the, the bar over you and then you take off when you ride in one? Yeah. I, I'm sitting next to you right now on that anxiety like it is it is so wild right now and you can't see the rest of the roller coaster and it sucks <laughs> it's really hard yeah I, I heard somebody on on or read somebody on twitter yesterday you know there's this you know training for a half marathon but finding out in the middle you ran a full or you're having to run a full but then you keep running and then somebody tells you actually we never really defined like how long this race was <laughs> that was all. i i saw that too and I, if i'm not mistaken that was our great voice of our profession esther chu was it esther who said that yeah i'm yeah. pretty sure i may be wrong but i think i think it was her yeah, but but I think that that's true. You know, like if you a, a huge part of my recovery, honestly, is goal setting and things that I can accomplish and and just, you know, letting go of the things I can't control. And so then when there's this vast void of just when is this going to end in front of you, I've had to really sort of micro set my goals again of like day to day, week to week, because I can't focus on what October will look like or what January, 2021. Right. Um, to right. me, that feels completely out of control. And But it's hard because everyone is asking is. for it, right? Everybody wants to know what yeah. about June? What about July? When do we do X? When do we get to do this other thing? And, and, you know, one of my a couple of my roles on the hospital leadership council and as a division chief, it is I have to plan for those answers, right? Yeah. Of <laughs> what we're doing with our residents in July. I was just yeah. doing that this morning for four hours, meeting with several different entities of planning out our education schedule, planning out, you know, how we're going to transition back to virtual medicine and integrating how our clinics reopen, you know, so part of my job obviously requires that I have to plan and do those things. And, um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge and, um, I think a, a struggle for a lot of us. You mentioned goal setting and there was another thing that came out of the book that I, for me feels like a worthy goal. And you talked about it where with your team after a bad outcome and it's, it's the bottom of 77, the medical team huddled to support one another. We hugged, we listened and we shared the moment. I started my medical career in 2003. Well, that's when I started. No, I started medical school in 1999 and I finished medical school in 03. I finished residency in 06 and I've been an attending ever since. I don't think I've ever done that before. I don't think I've ever, despite all of the trauma and horrible things and bad outcomes and sadness and death and delivering bad news, I don't think I've ever experienced that moment of after action catharsis. 
Mm. I've certainly never been taught how to do it. I don't think mm. I've seen it before. I've read about it. But when I read it in this context, I, I'm, I've huddled a lot with people. Mm. I've supported others in difficult times. In those moments, I don't think I've ever been the one to make myself vulnerable in front of other people. Mm. So yeah. that's my goal. I need to learn how to do that because right as part of being a competent leader, you have to lead from the front and demonstrate the behaviors you want others to 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 do. And I, that that specifically made me realize, gosh, for all of the times that I've supported others and counseled them in the moment and said, are you OK after something bad has happened? I, I need to develop the tool set to create the space where all of us can say none of us are OK right now, but that is OK. And let's move through it together. Yeah, well, that's a beautiful reflection. And I mean, I think it's the difference between asking somebody if they're okay and showing them that you're not. And, and that can be really powerful to do. And I learned, you know, early in my medical career, I always say some of the best mentors that I've ever had are people that showed me how to not do things well. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I was early in my career, a really sad death of a patient, and I started to, you know, tear up in, in the room. And somebody grabbed me and says, you know, oh, you don't cry in front of the patient or the family. And, and it always stuck with me that that was the wrong answer. And, and so for me, the normal human response was to share that moment of sadness and grief and loss with that person and that family, as long as I didn't make it about me, you know, there's a fine line of wailing on the floor and rolling around in your own grief, as opposed to sharing it, you know, um, sharing those tears in a way that's respectful and, and true. And, and so I always just remember that and reflect and that, you know, it, it, it's one thing for me to say to a resident who walks out of the room, it's okay to cry. It's another thing for them to see me do it. Yeah. And, and I think that that's powerful. When you have been able to demonstrate those behaviors that you feel like are important for personal growth and team growth, can you anticipate responses from the resident or the family or the nursing staff that might be in the room or whomever else is there? Do you anticipate what may come or are you comfortable with it enough now that in that moment you can be agile enough to handle however people may respond to seeing you crying or laughing or grieving or demonstrating the emotion that any normal human would feel in that context? Yeah, you know, it's a good point. I mean, I think so many, there there are a lot of things that come with the skill of repetition of doing it and being somewhat agile in the, in the moment. Um, but I think two things is, one, I try to just remove myself as not being the faculty division chief physician in this, but like just Adam, the human being person that just saw somebody die. And that that's really salient and powerful and moving and sort of draw from that as opposed to what I'm supposed to be as some hierarchical person in this power structure of a hospital building. And so that always reminds me to try to just draw back to like, you know, what actually just happened here? And that 
what happened here was really sad and really you know, overwhelming emotionally, and it's okay to to just share that um, as a person. So that's you know what I try to 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 draw on. Have you had people who are earlier in their career when they see this respond with a sense of surprise or uncertainty about how they're supposed to act, or do they do people kind of fit smoothly into this? I think the truth is we're so intellectually trained and to intellectualize everything that most of the time it turns into this, you know, M&M type mindset that people get into, right? That shoulda, coulda, woulda, blame, I shoulda done this or this sort of. And that seems to be this rote, almost immediate response most of the time, because I think that's what people are expecting because we've built these cathedrals of mechanisms of how we're supposed to dissect uh, events in the event. Events, right like yeah yeah ad- adverse events not human being dying in front of us but uh, <laughs> right in, in in the hospital that i think most people are you know go back to that initially that's the first response is like thinking of what should you know the intellectual piece as opposed to the emotional piece and i think what we try to do and what compassion rounds is what the debriefing work is like let's you know let's shelf that for a second let's put that to the side but like you know how did you feel in that moment or right because we don't learn the skills to process this stuff i mean as i'm listening to you talk i'm seeing the kaleidoscope of the 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 things that i've seen over the course of my career and one of them that leaps to mind was you know i was on call in the middle of the night and this was as an attending this was many many years ago and the nurse calls and says, you come right now. Uh, so I ran and the patient is on the floor in the hallway with blood just spraying out of their mouth and blood all over the floor and blood all over the wall. And he knew me because I'd taken care of him before. And he smiled. I wow. swear to God, he smiled. He, we got him to the OR. He survived. Thankfully mm-hmm. he survived all of this, but I've never processed that stuff. I certainly didn't process it in the moment. I just went back to the ER and kept admitting. Um, But that's a bizarre thing to go through. And I haven't thought about it in years until right now. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, even just you sharing that story, I think, like, that paints this vivid imagery in my mind that that draws me back into other moments. Yeah. All process, you know, and we need to get better at this. We just really need to get better at this. We do, and 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 I think that to draw it back full circle, right, is that part of my spiraling deep down in depression and self medication with alcohol, and you know, really being in the depths of full blown alcoholism, was that I just stuffed all of this stuff down and. Buried the trauma and buried it and layer of layer of just carrying around all of these weights until it just drug me down. And, and, and I really had to unpack it and unpack that weight by therapy, by being in professional treatment programs, by, you know, go going to a partial hospitalization rehab for six weeks of really starting to unpack all this of what I was running from, you know, what I was self-medicating away, yeah. what I was numb away. And it wasn't, it wasn't obvious. It wasn't on the surface. I had to do a lot of work. I continued to do a lot of work on myself. And, but I think now in the now is, you know, part 
to come back to that mission, that passion, that meaning, that what what drives me is to help other people unpack that too, so that you know hopefully they'll have a little more self insight and awareness uh, on their own journey in medicine that'll be preventative or at least helpful. And so it's kind of been part of my full circle journey. Your desire to do that really does permeate the book, and that's what kind of propels someone forward through some very difficult subject matter for sure. But I actually want to spend a moment with you on the cover. Is it you on the cover walking that dirt road? So uh, I get this question a lot. And oh, amazing- you do? Okay, good, good. Amazingly, it's not. Okay. And- tell you that even my kids don't know the difference and they're too young to really explain it to them because they think it's me. Uh, We, you know, my publisher, Central Recovery Press, we found just this beautiful stock photo that captured the imagery of what I wanted. Yeah. Down, you know, and really this grayness, this vagueness of this, you know, long walk is is a lifelong one. You're never fully out of the woods. But, the, you know, for those that read the book, the moment that I reached the depths of my suicidality was in the woods. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about this picture for me, too, is the title is Long Walk Out of the Woods. But, mm -hmm. right, it's the cover of the book. You're going to open it. You're going to move into something. The image that it gives does not. I didn't feel like I was walking out of the woods starting this book. I felt like I was walking in. Yeah. And, and I, I think that I, I wrote it in a way to, to hopeful to to bring people in into that, into the woods, start by yes. really setting the tone of where I was, my mindset when I was at my sickest, and then and then retelling the story of how I got there, but then hopefully leading people at the end of you know, how beautiful, fractured, ongoing, and and just filled with gratitude the rest of the walk has been for these years of recovery. And But I think tipping a nod, tip of the hat, too, that, you know, I'm... I'm still on this walk. I, I don't take anything for granted. I, you know, I live a day at a time in recovery and, and I'll be walking this the rest of my life. And I just hope that other people will, uh, you know, join me on that walk. I think one of the, one of the tools, I guess, is the right word that you use in the book that I found really compelling. And you mentioned it earlier is this idea of creating spaces in the book. And then you use the technique that I I've talked about on the podcast before that I love is juxtaposition. So you take Mm -hmm. us into the woods and you mentioned that that's where we, we come into a really dark moment with you. We go into conference halls that start off feeling really uncomfortable. You share that anecdote with one of your, one of the family members saying the, the room that you brought us into to share this difficult news, you could not have done a worse job. It was crowded and hot and we were already anxious and it was claustrophobic and awful. But then you take us into these other spaces where there's success and light and happiness and progress and putting those things together was really compelling. And, and I thought it was extraordinarily effective. And I get the sense that that was intentional. Yeah, it was. And I, I really appreciate you picking up on that and, and seeing that. I was. I was trying to. There's a lot of juxtaposition in, in the book and throughout and callbacks to sort of where this whole experience has taught me a new perspective. And I, I try to paint it in a way that shows like maybe, you know, some of the ways that I thought in my own addiction mindset versus like 
how I may see things differently or what I've learned now being a man in recovery. And so I try to try to paint those those both so that people see that there's a darkness, but also an incredible light. So when you put something like this into the world and people take it on board, they may not love it, but they'll, they read it and they learn from it and they adapt it. And then we come back to kind of bookending with how we started the conversation. We, we move into a pandemic with extraordinary stressors and things that provoke anxiety and things that are threatening to health and, and all of these sorts of things. And you are one of the people that is now looked to as having expertise and having wisdom and insight. How much are you being called on to support and help healthcare professionals and physicians and students outside of your own institution? Yeah, a fair amount. I mean, I, you know, I do a a fair amount of traveling across the country. Uh, Well, I guess pre-pandemic times. Now it's more consulting, Zoom conference, other things. I'll be back back on the road when it's safe again. And so, you know, I do, and I, I love that that work because I I get to learn from other people and learn from what they're doing, but also just meet other people with their own recovery stories. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, over the last two years, I've been more and more doing that. And, but I think it's, it's been a new chapter of my, my, my life too, of balancing that with three young children, a wife who also works in, in medicine of our, our home life and the sanctity of that and how to do it in a way that's safe and practical and sets my own boundaries and keeps me on the recovery mindset while also being able to help other people. And I think that's something I continue to figure out day after day. One thing that I would say you have figured out at a really high level is sharing that work on social media. So your Twitter feed is the one that I found early on. And that's how you and I ended up connecting in the first place. It is a it is it is a reflection for anyone who is brave enough to read it of the rigors of day to day life and and I really appreciate the way you set it up like that. It is not all sunshine and 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 roses. It is real hard work and real challenge that anyone can identify with. Well, I, I appreciate that, and I've appreciated really getting to know you and our online friendship and um, and your support. I I try, you know, it's interesting, and, and even in these times, right, I think there's been strategy to certain ways and people present themselves on social media and angles and selling sort of to, and I'm not talking about just medicine, but just in general, right, of filling sort of some void of what people want to hear in this space mm-hmm. and using yeah. it for for their own sort of selling. I try and I try organically every day to say like, you know, just to put stuff out there to normalize that I'm a normal guy. I'm a normal person. Yes. I have a addiction and depression history, but you know, I'm raising kids. I'm, you know, going into the hospital. I'm trying my best to help lead a team. And I'm also a a son, a brother, a friend, a neighbor, and just try to put stuff out in the world that just says like, hey, that one person that you thought who was an addict in quotation marks, like, well, that's me. And I live right next to you and I have a really normal, healthy life. And and I think I just try to do that. And whether it works or not is not up to, to me, but 
but that's what I try to do with that. So now that people know that you are active on Twitter, how do they find you there? Yeah, so my Twitter handle is Adam Hill. 1212, uh, which isn't a great moniker. It was created before sort of any of my professional tweeting, but, uh, but it's there. <laughs> so, uh, before, <laughs> before you had many, many thousands of followers and written a book. Yeah. You know, so I'm a storm chaser. Like I love weather. And so I, I joined Twitter. I don't even know, 2012 or something to get on just like the weather apps and things and follow people and it was really like small and organic and then uh and then i started connecting to friends but i really didn't even start using it till a year or two ago when i really saw that wow there's an awesome community of people out here and medical community and just people to connect to and so so i've really been active probably the last year or two yeah, no, I've I've had a similar journey. I think for me it was sports news and yeah, know, yeah. podcasts and stuff like that. And I was like, wait a minute, I host a podcast and I'm a doctor and there's probably other people out there that are doing this. And now here we all are. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you and I have been trying to get this together for a while and I, I just couldn't be more delighted that we were able to have it in this context and to know that there are people out there who not only share these experiences, but are working as hard as you are to educate the next generation of physicians, as well as the current generations, so that we can continue to build skills and get better and support each other in the way that is sustaining more so than ever now, because we are dealing with an extraordinary challenge that is not going away anytime soon. So for all of that, thank you so much. No, I I really appreciate it. I appreciate it being on and having the opportunity to share this book, but also just getting to talk to you. Uh, finally, I know we've been trying to connect for a while. And so yeah. re- really, really grateful for your, your support. Thank you. We're going to have a fun time. We'll get to go to a, I got to come out to Indiana cause I, I've got to come to the cradle of basketball and I got to, I got to go to the Hoosiers gym and I got to go to a Pacers game. I've got to do all those things. So, so you'll have to so, help me find my way around. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Butler grad, so I'd I know you are. Oh my gosh! Think season tickets to uh, to Hinkle Field House. You're a, we got a place you can stay in our in our house. You come on it. out. We'll we'll host you up. I'll show you around, and uh, and it'll be a a great time. I loved it when they made their run and really rose to prominence because that venue just looks like the classic band box of a basketball arena, just loud and hot and awesome. It is. So quick, fun story is I, I actually ran track at Butler for a year before I really sort of stepped away and pre-med and all that. And But they gave us a key back then to Hinkle Fieldhouse. And so I could go into Hinkle at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday night. <laughs> oh, man. Be the only person in there running the up upstairs track just getting a workout in like with the dim lights on the court nobody around just the echoes of your footsteps it was just i'll never forget those moments that is awesome that is so great i love that story any any basketball venue that has field house in the name i'm in you've got me that's right that's right i'm done that's perfect the book is phenomenal it's long walk out of the woods. How do people find the book? How do they access it if they want to read it or if they want to just learn more about it? Sure. So it's available anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million online. Uh, you can pick it up. It's available in Kindle and audiobook as well as paperback. So go to your favorite you know, bookstore or even library and request a copy or just buy, buy it online and can check it out. I'm so glad you wrote it. 
I'm, I'm delighted that you're here. I'm delighted that we're all part of this community. This was an absolute treat to speak with you, Adam. Thank you very much. Thank you. Be safe and, and well in all your work and in your life uh, moving forward. Thank you once again to my guest, Dr. Adam Hill, for coming on the podcast and discussing his book, Long Walk Out of the Woods. There's links in the show notes. Please do check it out. Definitely follow him on Twitter as well. Thanks once again to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thanks most of all to you for listening to this episode. There are tremendous demands on all of our time and all of our resources right now. And the fact that you take a few minutes to listen to Explore the Space podcast is something that I do not take for granted. It is extraordinarily meaningful. It makes me feel very, very proud. And I am grateful to you for taking the time to listen. We will be back with more episodes soon. In the meantime, make sure to continue to wash your hands. Make sure you continue to wear your mask. Make sure you continue to maintain physical distancing. And please stay safe. We will see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.